0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello, welcome or welcome back to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News. Joined today by a guy from the Great White North with a deep voice, big belly, no doubt at this point. Welcome, Sant O. Oh, Coach Connor. Coach Connor, you're in the house today. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing good, and probably a little bigger than I should be. Thanks, Chris. Yeah?
0: How's uh, your—are you wearing red right now? You got a hat on? I'm wearing green. Is that close enough? (laughs) That's more what an elf would wear rather than Santa, but I'll I'll allow it for today.
1: Well, you you never specified (laughs) wearing the pecking order in the North
0: Pole, I lie. That's true. That's true. Well, we've been uh, getting a ton of questions from listeners out there. We appreciate that very much. Keep them coming. As an aside, many of our podcast topics come from questions and suggestions you all send us, so thank you again. And there have been some recurring themes that have been coming out of the questions you've asked. So today we want to give you some short answers to those questions to tide you over before we might tackle them in full episodes. Today we're going to talk about diet, the value of short easy rides, subthreshold work in a polarized training model, and inflammation. As always, if you have a minute, please take the time to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get our podcast, and keep those emails coming. We have a dedicated Fast Talk address, fasttalkatvellonews.com. One last thing, we try our best to reply to all of your questions. We're getting several a day now, and it can be difficult to respond right away. Our recommendation, keep those questions nice and concise. If you send a long email it may very well go in the we'll deal with that later box or we'll have some elf out there try to respond to it at some point but with the number of emails we get later is always longer than we'd like so give us concise questions we hope to get them on the air or have them spawn a particular podcast episode now let's make you fast Working on your holiday wish list this year? Normatec is the ultimate athlete gift, and for a limited time, you can save $200 and get free shipping on the Pulse Recovery System. An extensive body of research shows that Normatec increases circulation and reduces muscle stiffness. The result? You can train harder and race faster. Normatech is the official supplier of USA Cycling, and it's also the same technology that riders like Tom Skunch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC Racing Team all rely on.
1: So we just want to give a quick correction. In episode 37 on nutrition, I was talking about the importance of the folic acid cycle to vegetarians and vegans. Uh, It's important to them because B12 and B6 are heavily involved in that process or in that cycle. And you can really only get B12 and good bioavailable forms of B6 from animal sources. So if you're vegan or vegetarian... Uh, you need to be supplementing with those. However, instead of saying B12 and B6 are part of the folic acid cycle, I just said you need B12, B6, and folate, which you can only get from animal sources, and and that that was my mistake. Uh, Folate you can get from actually your best sources are vegetables, especially green leafy vegetables. So uh, the only things you really need to be supplementing with if you're vegan or vegetarian are B6 and B12.
0: All right, let's dive into the first question, which comes from Brian Adkins, and it pertains to those shorter endurance rides. Hey, Trevor. The bottom line seems to be that 60 to 90 minute rides below VT1 are beneficial, i.e. not a waste of time, but longer rides have some advantages you just can't get on the shorter rides. I usually get a three and a half hour ride on Saturdays, but during the week, I often will do a 90 minute workout on the kicker. I suppose that might be slightly more beneficial than a 90 minute outdoor ride due to the constant pressure on the pedals with zero coasting and the ability to keep heart rate in a very narrow zone if desired. What do you think, Trevor?
1: I think that's a great question. <laughs> this is one of those ones that we're going to have at least one episode addressing this. We kind of hinted at it before, and I'm really hoping that uh, we can get Kevin Polton, who was a, a guest on our trainer episode a couple episodes ago, to come in and talk to us because he's worked with some world tour riders uh and and is a big believer in two a days not doing the really long ride and has seen a lot of success with it so hopefully we'll have that episode at some point in the future where we talk about two a days versus the long ride i personally am still a believer in the long ride and as our in the full email from brian i believe he said that he uh reached out to Dr. Steven Seiler, and Dr. Seiler said the same thing. I do think there are benefits you get for the long ride you can't get in any other way, and, and I'll just give you the, the brief, brief summary of that. The biggest one is fiber fatigue. When you go out at low intensity and you're fresh, you're really just going to rely on your slow-twitch muscle fibers. But while we say those fibers don't fatigue, they do. They get damaged. So as you continue with a long ride, those fibers can't produce the same sort of power. So you have to start recruiting your fast-twitch fibers, even at low intensities, which is not very stressful on your autonomic system. So later in a long ride, you're actually going to be recruiting those fast-twitch 2B or 2A, maybe some of the 2Bs to do work. And to do aerobic work, which has a lot of benefits. And and there's really no other way to get that effect. Uh, Another thing we've talked in previous episodes about lactate transporters. Managing lactate is really important to our aerobic engines. And it's at low intensity that we really build those MCT1 transporters, which take up lactate out of the blood. I would say the last thing th- th- that's a bit of a benefit is it takes a while to warm up your aerobic system. Uh, so initially, when you get on the bike and start pedaling, you're relying a lot on anaerobic metabolism. Uh, as they always say, fat burns on a carbohydrate fire. So you, you need to, to get the anaerobic system going before you can get the aerobic system going. So if you're trying to do aerobic training, first 10, 15 minutes of a workout is kind of wasted time. There's just an efficiency of if you go out and do a five-hour ride, you only have 15 minutes of wasted time versus if you do a bunch of shorter rides, then those 15 minutes add up. So that's a short, short version. We'll have a a longer episode on that. But I think the thing I want to emphasize here is there is a real value to that short ride. And I've been getting a lot of emails lately from people saying, hey, I love the polarized model idea. I love love this 80-20 principle. But, gee, when I have an hour and a half on the bike, what should I do? Should I do intervals every time? Should I be doing you know, neuro work? Should I be doing this or that? And when I tell them, no, just go out and do an easy hour, hour and a half ride, they go, but, but it doesn't hurt. I don't feel anything. There's no gains to that. I don't have the time for that. It, there's, there's no benefit to it. And that's a really wrong way to look at those easy rides, those short, easy rides. There are still benefits to them, even if they don't hurt you. Again, we'll cover this in a lot more depth in a future episode, but I think the first way you have to look at this is stop looking at individual rides. Stop saying, I got on the bike, I did an hour, it didn't hurt, so I wasted time. Instead, you really need to look at your week. And when we talk about that polarized model, the polarization's over the course of a week. So you're trying to add up time at that low intensity. So you really need to say, hey, if I'm going to do two interval sessions, I need to rack up some time at low intensity elsewhere in this week. And that's where those those short rides can benefit you. The way I look at it is that's where you do a lot of your recovery work. The short, easy ride helps your immune system. The big interval work, the long training rides, they actually suppress your immune system. And, And again, maybe we'll cover this in a later episode. But the slow, easy, short ride actually helps your immune system, helps its function, which is going to keep you healthy. But another key thing to remember is it's our immune system that repairs our muscle damage and causes us to adapt, or is a big part of the adaptation to exercise. So promoting the immune system or helping the immune system with those those short, easy rides is going to theoretically... Uh, speed your recovery, help the adaptations from that interval session you did a day or two ago.
0: I know Trevor could go on and on and on about this, but we're going to save it. We're going to cut you off there, Trevor. For those out there that haven't caught episodes 51 and episode 54 with Dr. Siler and the polarized training model, those are two that you'll want to check out because we go into a lot of information about some of the things that Trevor just mentioned in his answer to the question of The benefits of short endurance rides all right our next question comes in from greg bowerman and this one has to do with one of trevor's favorite topics food and wheat specifically so here's the question a recent article took me to your episode number 37 podcast on nutrition i'm on board with everything you say with exception to the issue of wheat However, I am beginning to come around on the concerns regarding gluten and related impacts on gut health and immune function given the constant negative barrage. I'm in great shape, never get sick. He claims one cold in the past 10 years, which I find hard to believe, but I I hope it's true and I wish I was him. And I have been training intensely for most of those 10 years. The only wheat in my diet is a bowl of ancient grains, cereal with fresh banana, fresh blueberries, and beetroot powder with soy milk. He has an all organic diet. I do occasionally have a slice or two of whole multi grain bread. My question to you is Do you believe, in light of my health history, that I completely eliminate wheat from my diet? Or does the quote, everything in moderation exempt us, some of us, with regard to concerns with wheat gluten? Trevor? take it away. So I got
1: to give a pretty short answer to this one, but I I was really glad we got asked this question. And I think that's an important thing with nutrition. I'm a big believer in the 85% rule, uh, meaning we need to have our 15% of the time where we have fun, eat our favorite foods and enjoy them i'm personally a huge fan of popcorn and as much as i try to eat really healthy i can,
0: I can attest to this
1: yes chris has gone to the movies with me and been absolutely disgusted uh
0: <laughs> <laughs> you see you store up your love for popcorn and have it in one whopping dose at the movie theater. Well, i don't
1: have it as mo- uh, as often as i used to but certainly when i have it i do like to say if you're gonna hang yourself don't skimp on the rope So, uh, yeah, if I'm going to have my popcorn, I'm going to enjoy it. So I will say that generally, in fact, when I see somebody being 100% religious about a particular diet, I get concerned Uh, because the next step is eating disorders. And plus, whenever I see somebody being 100%, that's very, very hard to maintain. And there are points where it's just going to get to be too much and you're going to get completely off of the diet. So I think kind of staying 85% is a good rule. That said, there are people with certain health concerns, and and Greg certainly doesn't sound like one of those, who do just need to say, at least with certain foods, I'm 100% all the time. My thesis was on people with autoimmune disease. We saw certain things that were triggers in people with autoimmune disease, wheat being one, Believe it or not, other foods that seem to aggravate autoimmune, uh, a lot of people with autoimmune conditions are bananas, tomatoes, and egg whites. Hmm. So if somebody has an autoimmune condition, they might have to eliminate those foods and never touch them again. If you think you might have a food that's triggering something in you, either an allergy or, or an autoimmune condition or other health issues... That's where I generally recommend an elimination diet, where you eliminate common trigger foods, you keep them out of your diet for a month. Uh, hopefully, at that point, you become your, your symptoms start to clear, uh, or it would be great is if they completely cleared, but that's rare. And then once you feel you've seen some benefit to the elimination, then you start reintroducing the foods one at a time. So maybe each week you reintroduce a food and watch to see how your body responds and you'll pretty quickly identify which foods are a trigger for you.
0: To uh, to follow up on your initial point about the 85% rule, I think one thing that's good about that is if you try to stick to that 100% and you're very fastidious about that and then you slip and you've got this mindset that slipping just one percent is is the end of the world. Then you might start to have these feelings of guilt and all of that, and that just gets messy and it's it's unnecessary. I also would like to uh, uh, emphasize the fact that you need to you need to be honest. And if fifteen percent is actually fifty percent, then you're not doing it the way Trevor is recommending. You have to think about your consumption and and be honest with yourself. And, and uh, 85% is a hefty margin or a quantity, I should say. And if you're not really hitting that, you need to strive more towards that to really reap the benefits of what he's suggesting here.
1: Exactly. And The other recommendation I give, there's some people who say, I'm going to be 85% every day. And so every day they have their cheats and their rewards. And that quickly leads to the 50-50 that Chris was just talking about. I think it's more effective to say, I'm going to have several days in a row where I'm going to eat really well and congratulate myself for for my discipline and and for being healthy and, and then have your day where you cheat.
0: All right. The next question comes in from Tom Robinson, and it has to do with inflammation. The question With recovery, how do you balance allowing inflammation to cause your body to react and get stronger versus trying to stay fresh enough to race and or complete workouts? For example, everything I've heard and read says we should use anti-inflammatory agents post-workout, correct? And in my head, that could include NSAIDs, foods with omega-3s, turmeric, etc. But do you throw this idea out the window when you're in the heat of racing season, meaning you did the hard work to build fitness. Now it's time to maximize your performance.
1: So I'm actually going to start my answer with a, a bit of an unusual uh, answer to that question. Would I hear about people talking about using a lot of anti-inflammatories after exercise, they're telling me they're always in pain, they're always tired. Uh, shouldn't they be using anti-inflammatories? I'm actually going to take a step back and say, how well are you balancing your training and your recovery? So if you are feeling like I need to take anti-inflammatories because I'm I'm still sore and I can't do the next day's workout, I got intervals planned today and my legs are wrecked and to, to blunt the pain is the only way I can get through those intervals. I'm going to say, you weren't ready yet to do those intervals. You are out of balance. And all you're doing by taking those anti-inflammatories is hiding the fact that you're damaging your body, you're not repairing, and you're probably not adapting, and you're heading bad places. So keep that in mind. that The first answer is how well are you balancing recovery? And a lot of us are really bad at the recovery side of training, and we've said that 100 times. Going specifically to the anti-inflammatories, so here we're talking about the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, most of them are what are called COX-2 inhibitors. So we have what are called, I'm going to try not to go too much into the biochemistry here, but our body produces things called prostaglandins. They serve a whole bunch of functions. There are a series of prostaglandins, these cyclooxygenase or COX, which have a variety of functions in the body. In particular is this COX-2. Basically... It's what causes pain. So when you take an anti-inflammatory, it's trying to block it from causing a lot of the pain we feel in the body. It's not the only cause of pain, but it's certainly a big cause. of It's when we feel pain from inflammation, it's one of the big causes. So you can blunt that pain by taking an anti-inflammatory. The problem is, as they've improved the research on how muscle repair and adaptations occur after training, they discovered that COX-2 plays a very, very important role in rebuilding our muscles after training. So, they play a key role in the training effect. So, if you take a lot of anti-inflammatories, you are going to blunt your ability to adapt from your training. So, that's something to try to avoid. And I do remember reading a study I don't have in front of me where they took cyclists, they had half just train and take no anti-inflammatories. They had another group uh, that would train and then take an anti-inflammatory after training. Otherwise they were doing the exact same training. And the group on the anti-inflammatory saw half of the training games of the people on the NASEDs or that weren't on the nasets. So something to avoid. Now in the, the email, uh, Tom asked about omega-3s Uh, because they've been shown to be anti-inflammatory, and that's very true. Um, Prostaglandins are made from fatty acids. When we eat a lot of omega-6 fatty acids, we produce a lot of COX-2. And if you overproduce COX-2, that's when you start having inappropriate inflammation and inappropriate pain. If you eat more omega-3 fatty acids, then you tend to stay more in balance of the different types of prostaglandins that you uh, produce. And quite literally, your body decides what type of prostaglandin to produce by what type of fatty acids you're you're consuming. So if you consume a better ratio of omega-3s to omega-6, you're gonna keep a better balance. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm still looking for research on this, but I don't think it's going to hurt your training effects but it's certainly going to help to keep the pain down potentially.
0: Very good. Which actually leads pretty well, I believe, into our next question. Yes. Which comes from Barry Hare. Barry Hare. Let me get that right. So this one uh, ref- references our episode with Dr. Noakes, which I'm not sure what episode number that was, but very another very popular episode that we recorded in the last six months Dr. Noakes mentions that, quote, vegetable oils are really toxic. Now, Barry wants you to define vegetable oils because he sees conflicting information on the internet about that. He asks, if that involves olive oil, then I am screwed. So what is the inflammatory basis for these vegetable oils, the product itself, or the process to make the oil? Trevor? So this is
1: one of those ones where we could do an entire episode on this and it would get quite complicated. So I'm going to try to give the short answer here. There are a bunch of vegetable oils out there. There's a bunch of oils out there. Uh, And it seems like every time you go in the grocery store, there's a new one to explore and try. We're not going to dig into each one because that would, like I said, that could be a whole episode on its own, probably a couple episodes. Uh, What I will say is, I think there was a point where there was a belief that these vegetable oils were healthier because we were very anti-saturated fats. And most of these vegetable oils are very high in omega-6 fats, which we were just talking about. Uh, so, which, you know, so omega-3s and omega-6s are your polyunsaturated fats. And so, so I think at some point they looked at these vegetable oils and said they're very high in polyunsaturated fats. They have no saturated fats. So this is a great thing. I'm actually going to argue that the that ratio of of omega six to omega three is more important than the ratio of saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat. And again, that would be a whole episode in itself. Um, but if you consume too much poly or too much omega six, that's where you can start causing inflammatory issues like that overproduction of COX two. Generally, we want to eat about a ratio of 2 to 1 polyunsaturated – or sorry, omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, a lot of these vegetable oils on the market are 10 to 1.
0: And and just to, to clarify, when you you're talking vegetable oils, we're talking everything from – veg things labeled vegetable oil but corn oil are we talking about olive oil are we talking about um, so i get a high oleic i i will go ahead get to olive oil like i said we can't address
1: all of these so i i am talking in general about the most common vegetable oil so there's literally you go in the grocery store you're going to see a lot of stuff that's just labeled vegetable oil uh corn oil is obviously a very popular one there there's a bunch on the market that uh, most of what you're going to see in the grocery store that are this, these lines of vegetable oils that are very high in omega-6 fatty acids. The other issue with them is they're very nutrient poor. Really all they are is, is calories. Uh, there, there's no uh, micronutrients in, in the oils at all or, or very, very little. So if you use any vegetable oil or any oils in general, you need to make sure that you're you're eating it with nutrient dense foods. So vegetables, lean meats, fish, eggs, those sorts of foods. Uh, Otherwise you're just getting a lot of calories and not much else. If I had to recommend one oil to cook with, it is olive oil. Uh, Olive oil uh, is actually low in polyunsaturated fats both omega-6 and omega-3, it's very, very high in monounsaturated fats, which are also quite healthy, uh, or at least particularly the the type in olive oil are quite healthy. What you have to be careful about with olive oil is cooking. You don't want to cook it on high heat because it will denature. So uh, stay medium or below and slow cook your food when you're using olive oil. An oil that used to get mentioned a lot because it was high in omega-3s and lower in omega-6 was canola oil. Uh, and there was actually a point where we recommended that uh, but have moved away from it because unfortunately, it has a lot of alpha linol. Sorry, I always struggle with the pronunciations of these, but uh, it's very high in alpha-linolenic acid. And there have been studies that show correlations with prostate cancer. So at this point, I would say until... There's research to, to point in other directions or, or to, to counter that. Canola oil is probably one to avoid. So, my recommendation is olive oil.
0: What's a canola, by the way?
1: <laughs> uh, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe canola oil is made from rapeseed.
0: Yeah, rapeseed. Or rapeseed Rape oil. Yes. I believe it is. Yes. I always thought that was interesting. Would you, uh, and I heard somebody put it this way, like, okay, I understand olive oil and some of these others, but what is a canola? Would you really want to be eating something called a canola? You know,
1: I cannot tell you the the name. That's that's a very good question. So uh, I think the other, but you, you kind of reminded me of an important point. There have been issues lately with olive oil where there are companies that are putting together pretty unhealthy vegetable oils and just slapping olive oil on the side of the the bottle so you do need to be careful that if you're using olive oil that you look for a, a reputable brand and you know that it actually is olive oil
0: yeah that's probably another interesting question how how things can actually be technically labeled olive oil what percentage must be made from olives etc cetera, etc cetera. we could We could go on and on about this, I'm sure. But uh, I think that does a good job of answering uh, Barry's question. So Trevor, I know you're uh, sitting up there shivering in the cold of Toronto right now, but you, you made a visit to Colorado not too long ago. You stayed with me and you brought in multiple bags to my home. What was that all about? I don't know if
1: I should be embarrassed about this or not, but I packed up my stuff for Colorado. I was down there for five weeks and I had a choice. Uh, I could either cut some stuff or I could take two bags. And I had my Enormatex in the pile and it was basically, they were what I was going to have to cut. So I kid you not, I paid for a second bag to take my Normatex out there. And if you want to see the dorkiest thing in the world, the week I was staying at Chris's house, we sat there in his living room every night doing our Normatex.
0: And my daughter was like, Daddy, Daddy, why are you a spaceman? (laughs) I thought she just gave us a really frightened look and kind of backed into the kitchen. (laughs) Well, she did that too.
1: Well, safe to say Chris and I are big fans of Normatex and that's why we have them on the show. So if you're working on your holiday wish list this year, Normatech is the ultimate athlete gift. And they are, for a limited time, having a special $200 off and get free shipping on the Pulse Recovery System. An extensive body of research shows that Norma Tech increases circulation and reduces muscle stiffness. The result is that you can train harder and race faster. Tech is the official supplier of USA Cycling and is also the same technology that riders like Tom Skoinch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team all rely on.
0: All right. So our uh, next question comes from Kenneth Peterson and has to do with, again, those episodes 51 and 54 with Dr. Seiler. His question is, I've truly enjoyed episodes 51, 54 with the in-depth discussions of the three zone model that Dr. Seiler, Coach Connor, and others advocate. It is simple and makes a lot of sense. Having listened to episode 56 a couple of times regarding the hour record preparation and attempts by Colby Pierce and others, I got really interested in the training program that Neil Henderson designed for Rowan Dennis in the prep. For his hour record attempt, the focus on sustaining a near FDP threshold for an hour is relevant, I think, for anyone focusing on 25-mile TTs. The reason for this email is that I'm trying to reconcile the polarized model with the upper zone 2 slash threshold program that Henderson designed for Rowan. I am in myself focusing my efforts primarily on TTs, from 25-mile from to 6-hour TTs. Therefore, I am wondering if I should design my training less on a polarized program but more on Zone 1 endurance training, 4- to 6-hour efforts, combined with a couple of weekly near-threshold intervals, primarily on my power trainer, a la Henderson. In other words, the key, the key question is, A, whether zone three anaerobic high-intensity intervals combined with my long endurance rides in mid-upper zone one of the polarized model provides a better foundation for my long individual time trials versus B, replacing the zone three high-intensity intervals with near-threshold intensity intervals. Let's pick that one apart, Trevor.
1: This is such a huge question. And we have received this question from, I think, what, 10 people now? that we actually have three episodes that will come up in the next year where we address this question in one form or another. So we're hoping to get Dr. Seiler back for a part three where we're going to actually ask him this exact question. Uh, We are at some point going to have Sebastian Weber join us, who is Tony Martin's coach and Peter Sagan's coach. And we had an off-the-mic conversation with him uh, that we said we need to turn this into an episode where he basically said thresholds unimportant. You don't really race a threshold, or at least FTP, uh, which was a really interesting perspective. And you, you have to look at his success with his athletes and go can't can't write that off. And also, Chris and I at some point soon are actually going to do a kind of pull it all together episode because we we've touched on a whole bunch of these things multiple times in episodes, and we felt it's it's time soon to just do a what does all this mean what is our overall recommendations in in training uh, where we're certainly going to address this
0: so hey hey trevor yeah. when, are, when are we going to quit our day jobs and just become professional podcasters
1: i thought this was my day job <laughs> <laughs> right
0: right oh, that's right, right. Okay. i got to get paid we'll to do what- this
1: first to be a day job okay that would be nice wouldn't it it would okay so let's try to take what Uh, three episodes worth of of stuff and get it down to five minutes. So this is going to be very cursory. Uh, First, just a reminder, Dr. Seiler's polarized approach to training is based on three zones. So a lot of people, a lot of you out there might have five, six training zones. Uh, Dr. Seiler simplified it down to to three zones. So zone three is above your, your lactate threshold or kind of ftp uh, up to your vo2 max. He doesn't really focus above that. Zone 1 is very low intensity. What you think of is that those base slow miles type intensity, uh, that's below what's called your aerobic threshold. And then zone 2 is in the middle. And the polarized model basically says spend very little time in zone 2, spend about 80% of your time in zone 1 and 20% of your time in zone 3. Now, that 80-20 is based on workouts. So if you go and do an uh, an interval session, it's not how much time uh, you spend at particular intensities, that whole workout counts. So meaning if you're doing 80-20, that means for every two interval workouts that you do, you need to do eight low-intensity workouts. If you actually do it by time, so if you distributed your power, it would actually be closer to 90-10 believe it or not. So the question that we got asked is there are people out there like Neil Henderson who have had a ton of success at very high level with training just sub-threshold, which would be zone two, which the polarized model is saying avoid. So how do we address this? First, let's go back to Dr. Seiler. Remember, he comes from a running skiing background, which is part of why he doesn't really focus on the above VO2 max, because in, certainly in, in skiing, there isn't that much sprinting. There isn't that much attacking because there really isn't that much drafting. So it's going to be much more doing your, your racing at threshold or, or in your VO2 max range. Another important thing to remember is how you're defining that threshold. So we in the cycling world have gotten very used to this concept of FTP. Most of us use this 20-minute power times 0.95 to come up with that number. I could tell you my experience with athletes, my experience with myself is that number tends to be higher than what your true physiological threshold is. I know... Using that way of calculating my FTP, my FTP is about 30 watts above my uh, my actual in lab measured threshold. So, for a lot of you out there, if you're training just below FTP uh, and you think you're in zone two, you're actually not. You're, You're still well in that zone three range. There is a huge value that's been demonstrated to training just below threshold. So I'm gonna get away from Dr. Seiler for a minute and then get back to him. It has been shown that, you know, again, for you time trialists out there, your ability to clear lactate is critical to your success. And it has been shown that we max, maximally clear lactate at about 95% of our lactate threshold. And I'm talking now about our in-lab measured lactate threshold, which puts you at that high end of Seiler's, Dr. Seiler's zone two. That's also about the point where you seem to maximally burn fat for fuel. So there are real benefits to training right at that intensity. And that's what Rohan's doing. That's what a lot of very good coaches I know have, athletes who are focusing on time trialing. Or breaking away, they spent a lot of time training there. Interestingly, Dr. Seiler did some studies on different types of intervals, and he he explored four three types: four by four minutes, four by eight minutes, four by sixteen minutes. And what he you know, the most recent of those studies, which actually looked at our, our body's inflammatory response, so he actually measured blood markers of inflammation. He discovered that there, there were big gains of those four by 16s, but they didn't have nearly the stress on the body that the, the higher intensity intervals had. And I just actually, Dr. Silo was just at a conference over in Europe where he talked about this and said, the issue with these really high intensity intervals, especially when you start talking about 15 second intervals, 30 second intervals, is they're very, very stressful on the body. He did say, yeah, cyclists need them but you don't need a lot of them. There's kind of something to top off your form as you're you're getting into the peak of your season. So he talked about these four by 16s and said, you you seem to get the same gains without the same stress. Now in the study, they had the, uh, so this was experienced cyclists. They did the intervals at self-selected intensity. And so they were instructed, do the intervals as hard as you can, but at an intensity where you can get through all four intervals. And when these cyclists did the four by 16 minute intervals, they tended to be right around 85% of their maximal heart rate, which for most of us is just below threshold. So now I'm just giving my opinion, but this is based on everything I just told you and a whole lot more that we'll cover in future episodes. I do think there's a big value to training just sub-threshold. I have my athletes do it. And I am very much looking forward to having Dr. Seiler back on the show, but I think he's going to agree that that just sub-threshold, that, that 95% of your threshold uh, training there still fits in the polarized model. And, and you really want to think of that more as, as zone three training. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Normally, Chris reads this, but like usual, he forgot the script and I have it. So I'm <laughs> going to embarrass Chris right now. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Velanews podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. We also have a brand new tech podcast, which is pretty cool, so check that out as well. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com velanews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash Fast Talk is a joint production between Bella News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.